0: I hope you're strapped in and strapped on.
1: How we learn about sex growing up. What if we put these notions of sex ed in the places where they made the most sense? The number of
0: times that Sims comes up. All people should feel pleasure in some shape or form. His sperm is immortal. What are we to do? Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Sex Essentialist podcast. I'm your host, Em, and today I am joined by Dr. Megan Bartlett-Chase, Meg is a former sex educator and sexual violence crisis counselor. Last year, I believe, um, she received her Ph.D. in education policy with a research focus on sex education policy, practice, and controversy. Um, Today, we're connecting on what I believe to be a current favorite topic of yours, um, sort of how we learn about sex growing up and some themes related to that. So Meg, welcome to the show thanks for having me this is so fun i am so excited um you know guests are familiar i feel like every time i i segue into this people roll their eyes but um i love to have folks um introduce themselves through um something that relates to obviously what it is that we're talking about which is sex so um I believe you've come prepared with an anecdote that ties to sex, dating relationships, um, maybe sex education, so on, and I'll hand it over to you to to kick us off with that.
1: Yeah, I love that you said current favorite topic because I'll I'll be honest, <laughs> I think it's sort of an evergreen favorite topic.
0: Um, when okay, I was a, yeah,
1: when I was a kid, my I have a few examples of things, and which sort of led me to wanting to write this book, which we'll get into in a little bit. Yeah. Um, But my mom was really open about sex education and just talking about sex when I was a kid, so thinking about the ease of talking about it for myself versus the difficulty of other folks talking about it is something that really I contemplated a lot and it resonated a lot thinking back to a couple of times when I was a kid, and my mom had this... Mom had this, um, I don't know if it was sort of like a game or a tactic or whatever it was, but there's always that really awkward moment for a lot of families when you're watching a movie and a sex scene comes on on TV. Yeah. yeah. So people will a lot of times say like, oh, my mom would like cover my eyes or my dad would just turn off the TV or we would mute it or like I would shut my own eyes just because I was so embarrassed. Yeah. yeah. Um, And since we were little, me and my younger, two younger siblings, my mom would sort of turn it into, like, a learning moment. Mm. So we would be watching a movie and a sex scene would start to happen or someone's, like, bra would come off or something like that. She'd go, do you guys think they're having fun? Like, (laughs) do they both seem into it right now? Or specifically to my brother, she would say things like, Feels like they've had a lot of drink tonight. What do you guys think about this? So oh my God. <laughs> these moments that I think were really uncomfortable and awkward for other families sort of became media literacy moments in I'm my house. I'm so
0: obsessed with that. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was such a weird and unique thing. Um, and I'm not sure where she learned it from or if it was just something that popped in her mind. But every time I talk to folks who have younger kids, I'm like, do not freak out if there's a sex scene in a movie that's unexpected because like that starts to teach shame so early it starts all of these like oh I'm supposed to be uncomfortable when sex comes up um and my mom just made it kind of funny and weird and we had to think about it so evergreen favorite
0: topic I love talking about sex ed that is so fantastic I'm obsessed with that I um yeah, I, I it's hard for me to imagine a better way of handling that situation honestly. Um Yeah, because, I mean, we,
1: yeah go, no, for go it. ahead. We just got information on consent and she would say like, "Well, they both seem into it, so that's cool." Or yeah, just the ease of the context.
0: Yeah. And I do feel like you use the words funny and weird, and I feel like sex is funny and weird in in a beautiful magical very human way, right? And um Talking about it that way is so natural. Um, I, I just love that she embraced that. I think um, that's something that when I, when I um, you know, my podcast is obviously geared towards adult education, um, adult themes more than anything. But uh, when I teach, I teach 12 to 15-year-olds. And mm. um, I feel like that's something that our um, the nonprofit I work with should talk to Parents about because so much of what we talk about these days with youth is media literacy. And it it's mm-hmm. taken, I mean, certainly when um, you know, we were, for those of us who were um millennials when we were kids, like there was there was a need for media literacy then, but it's just taken a whole new form now. It's 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 a monster of its own being now. It's totally. um and so talking having those conversations and like i think is even more important now so anyway that's great um wow what a fantastic seed to play i'm obviously very excited about that one
1: <laughs> it's a really good one and funny and weird is such a good
0: yeah it is yeah. sex is funny and weird and human totally. and all of those things yeah i love it um awesome so um you mentioned your book and and we've we mentioned um you know thinking about how we learn about about sex growing up. But before we get too in the weeds on on the topic, um, I'd love for you to just share with our audience a little bit about your background and journey in the field of, of sex ed and, and crisis counseling and sort of leading up to pursuing your PhD. Yeah,
1: I think of my really early sex education experiences as both really unfortunate and really lucky at the same time um Mm. I grew up in a really conservative small town that didn't do a ton of sex education and a lot of the sex education that we did receive was a lot of fear-mongering around STIs and STDs and like the conversation around um just like how risky it is and abstinence is the only truly safe way and like all of these things that didn't really give us the true nuance and context of things um yeah which I was lucky enough to receive a lot of at home. So I remember being in class and going, wow, no one else is getting this stuff at home. This is all these kids are getting. Like my Hmm. my peers are getting is just this. Um, So I remember sort of having those feelings and thoughts. And then I started college and I joined the violence prevention program. And I did the teaching the educator part. There was crisis counselors, which you could take crisis calls, or you could go out and do presentations on consent, bystander intervention, healthy relationships, that kind of stuff. Um, and I was at the University of Minnesota, so I'll plug the Aurora mm-hmm. Center here. They're a really wonderful program. Um, awesome. and a group of people, like eighty volunteers every year. It's so cool, and I have friends mm-hmm. still that I'm so close to from it. But they really helped me situate sex education as just like an ongoing thing because I did mm. really think of it as a middle school, high school thing until that moment where I was like, oh, this is this is a forever thing. We're never not learning, which I loved that you said it's geared, this podcast specifically is geared towards adult learners because mm. we're never not learning about our bodies and sexuality because our bodies totally. aren't stagnant and our sexuality is not stagnant. Yeah. Um, so I was doing that education and I was really interested in school psychology. I ended up getting a job where I did sex education and crisis counseling around different public schools and private schools in the Twin Cities area. Hmm. Really loved that, but I saw all of these problems consistently, and school psychologists were really putting out the fires, which, like all the props in the world to them, they're incredible. Yeah. But I was like, I wish the policies were different so their jobs weren't so hard. I wish yeah. sex educators didn't have to hire third-party speakers to come in because they were worried about what parents would say to them if they taught a certain topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the times it was, well, we brought in this domestic violence prevention organization to speak, like we can't get mad at them. So there were all these weird little moments. Loopholes, yeah. Yeah, loopholes. Um, and these ways that we could just manage an angry parent if we were dealing with someone who is angry, like how could we circumvent aggression or blame or fear like anger and I just got really obsessed with this idea of controversy and Mm -hmm. realizing that sex ed just wasn't that controversial of a topic so it's like why do we think it is how is policy actually enacted how do teachers navigate those spaces so yeah I started looking for education policy grad programs um And I had the space and time to just really focus on teacher experiences. So my dissertation was really focused on teachers themselves, how they practiced, how they taught sex ed, whether they were in liberal states or schools or conservative states or schools, and how they navigated controversy. Um, Mm. And throughout that whole time, my favorite party question and thing that I would just sort of ask friends it's like what's your funny sex ed story or like what's your funny sex talk story or what was your sex talk like um because everyone has one even if you don't think you do (laughs) so that became sort of this side passion project thing of mine Mm -hmm. while I was working on dissertation and different things like that where I was just like what if I started recording that answer like what if I started doing interviews with folks Um, so I think that sort of takes me to where I am now. I'm doing work in higher education, um, non-profit policy work now, but sex ed's at the heart.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and I can see sort of the uh, organic thread from your early age interests, really, to um, where you are now. And um, this idea of controversy, I feel like, is so interesting, and it's interesting to me that that... Piqued your interest in particular because, to your point, it's it, it's when controversy occurs around sex ed, it it impacts everyone, right? and It impacts the schools and the teachers, like you said. It certainly impacts the students. Um, it impacts parents, and, and then I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I um, my understanding of education policy is high level and certainly not <laughs> to the expertise that you have, right? But it becomes an ex- an echo chamber, right? We live in this, this media-centric society. And in my mind, the more vocal parents are about um, feeling negatively about uh, or creating, if you will, a controversy surrounding some form of sex education or, um, you know, related topic education, you mentioned domestic violence, right? Then the more a school's administration has to react and the more it gets escalated until policymakers are put in a position of, of um, you know, feeding into it in a way that I think negatively impacts the, the, the implementation of comprehensive sex it over time. Um, does that, does that, am I at all kind of close to, to the way that some of that works?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, The piece I kept getting stuck on was it felt like people were making it controversial for teenagers and kids to learn about their bodies. And I'm like, their (laughs) own bodies. Why is it controversial? (laughs) Um, And I, being someone who was interested in research, I was like looking at stats and trying to figure stuff out. And honestly, every state is so different. Yeah, It's very much Wild West and how things function with education in general, but like sex education really specifically. But Minnesota, for example, like, there was this massive study with 700 parents from like all over the state and 90% of Minnesota parents supported some level of comprehensive sex education mm-hmm. and a lot of those people were like yeah students should get to learn what abortion is in school a lot of them were like very highly comprehensive and this was this was 90%. So it seems yeah. like most constituents especially parents like the ones that elected officials are the most concerned about what if the parents get upset and what if the parents um, start fighting me it's just not grounded in what we know and what our studies are showing about public support for sex education Mm. comprehensive sex education specifically but when we have a really loud minority of people that keep yelling and telling us it's controversial yeah it's hard not to think that it is and something about elected officials is it's really important to get reelected to continue to make positive changes. Yeah. So even if you're worried about a really tiny minority of people, it gets scary fast. And they're so yeah. grassroots. Like they send people to school board meetings across the state, across the country. People do. they are really concentrated groups of very loud people who are very against comprehensive sex education in schools. Yeah. Um and it yeah, it creates like almost a fabricated issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the internet in particular lately has been honed in on this notion that like sex ed is a form of grooming and like sex ed promotes like like brainwashes people into being LGBTQIA plus, right? Which is like one of many um myths that I've feel like i do not need to bust on this particular show with this particular audience most of my listeners are yeah if they're if they've sought me out this far they they know who they're dealing with right (laughs) um and i I, you know i'm originally from texas so certainly um saw firsthand some of the impact that uh certain uh often right-leaning um you know minority communities um like minority populations you know not oppressed minorities but um you know or in texas case sometimes majority uh can have on the access to basic information right understanding um what a menstrual cycle is really in earnest um as opposed to just you know it happens every month don't worry about it um but I think that there there is such a deep fear around this idea that the more familiar that people are with their bodies, the more aware they are of their body's capability of pleasure. Um, and for some reason, that really scares people um, which is unfortunate because all people should feel pleasure in some shape or form it doesn't have to be sexual, right? but it's just like mm-hmm. bodily awareness seems so tied to that um in in the way that we think about it. so, um. That's that's interesting i would be um curious to understand um how has your knowledge your involvement obviously in education policy um impacted the way that you think about this notion of sex growing up and it's interest to you i mean how how has um the evolution of policy over the last several years informed the way that you're thinking about the topic in a broader sense
1: yeah i feel like there are a few different ways i could go about answering that so bear with me as i follow a few different strains of thought here (laughs) um one of them is i've gotten really creative in my mind about what i think a dream world of sex education would look like Mm. um and I'm not suggesting that this is something that is plausible or probable by any <laughs> <That's> means. <okay. laughs> but I think I think we think about sex, especially growing up, as something that we talk about in isolation. Like we talk mm-hmm. about it. There's the talk. There's the birds yeah. and bees, which is what coincidentally, my book project is what I'm calling, calling it. Um, there's a two week period in health class. There's the, the puberty talk in fifth grade or whenever it is that people receive it, but we think of it as these like very isolated moments. Um, and that's not what sexuality or puberty or being human is. We don't Mm -hmm. have those things in isolated moments. So when I'm thinking about policy and how we set standards and how we do all of these things, um, I really kept thinking of like what if it was more expansive what Mm. if we put these notions and topics of sex ed in the places where they made the most sense so what if you were reading a book in english and there was a sexual assault or something harassment related that happened in the book feels like a really organic time to talk about consent it feels like a really organic time to talk about power and relationships Mm. um we have biology classes where you cover anatomy and you cover the bones and muscles feels like a really organic time to cover (laughs) all of the anatomy and bones and muscles, you know? Um, So we have all of these different subjects, but we treat sex ed like it's isolated from all of them, which Mm -hmm. then I think makes us feel like sex is an isolated part of our lives when it's not. So I think that synthesizes more of, I just think of it as much more expansive and hmm. less of a single issue item because telling people, yeah, I got I got my PhD in education policy, but really my main focus is sex education policy. And they're like, wow, that's super niche. And I don't feel like it is, is at it? all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I understand what they're saying too.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it totally. If you're not in this world of thinking about sex at all the time, which obviously yeah. a few of us are thinking about it all the time, um, then I guess it does seem... Like sort of out of left field, Um, Mm -hmm. when people tuck sex into a corner of like, yeah, I'm gonna do it, and maybe I'll make jokes about it, or I'll talk about it with my friends, but you know, I'm not gonna let it trickle into everything that I do. Yeah, I I completely agree with you. And um, I had a conversation um, for another episode where um, we we talked about it was in sort of the context of uh, folks um, facing infertility issues, and um, you know how. In, in certain situations where sex is treated as transactional or you're in a rut sexually with a partner or however you want to describe it, that mm-hmm. um, you forget that that impacts so much of, of everything else you experience on on the day to day and the way that you, you know relate to your partner or partners the way that you think about yourself and your body. I mean, it's not, sex isn't the end all be all of life, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's integrated throughout everything else. Um, and certainly when it comes to sex education for youth, for adolescents, um, you know, of course I'm, I'm of the belief that education that education should include, um, an open-ended conversation about identity exploration right that it's Mm -hmm. um an understanding that um you know sex assigned at birth is a a spectrum right the anatomy of that is a, a spectrum that people can have gender identities and expressions that are on a spectrum and all of that is completely open and valid and you know opening the door it's not you know i don't think by the age of you know 14 anyone should have anything figured out but the fact that they should understand that they don't have to limit the way that they think about themselves in this world and that there's something to me that's freeing about that but I think to a lot of people that's scary um yeah I think that uh, ties yeah
1: that ties back really nicely though to your comment that you made earlier about people right now very very small group of people right now yeah insinuating that sex educators are groomers and things like that and just Like, I cannot tell you how much I don't care if, like, one particular, like, if your child, if someone's yelling at me, and I'm like, I cannot care less if your child has sex. But if they do, I would like them to have a nice time and not hurt anybody while they do it. Yes. If I'm not turning anyone queer or anyone trans, but if they are... I would really like them to not hate themselves because of it. 100%. So it's so much around that harm reduction and breeding positivity. Yes. As opposed to these narratives and stories that people build around yeah. people who teach sex ed, obviously.
0: Totally. Yeah, no, that's such a good way of putting it. It's like, I truly do not give a fuck about the individual person or people out there having sex as long as it is in the right situations. Yeah, the right like consent. never have sex don't do it I
1: don't care but like if you do (laughs)
0: yeah like whatever happens happens it's fine by me (laughs) um and I like this idea of like all of the organic opportunities in school to introduce really important conversations about sex I um when I think about like teaching consent what I tell my um my friends who are starting to have kids is like ask your kids, if they want a hug, don't just give them a hug, right? Mm-hmm. And tell your – I mean, everyone had like a, you know, a weird or slightly estranged extended family member that they felt obligated to hug or kiss on the cheek. And like no one should ever feel obligated to, you know, lend their bodies to someone else in that context if, if they're not wi- – you know, if they're not willing, I use the word lend in lieu of, um, you know, harassment, right? But like mm-hmm. when you were talking about that, I was thinking about how often I – think about this, things that go on in my brain how often i think about the fact that you know henry the of england broke from the catholic church basically to fuck and like it's it, obviously so much more than that but just how many times there are in history that sex the desire to have sex the desire to be married the desire to not be married like came into play on like major political decisions um it's fascinating so many opportunities right there It's just, yeah and just we're human
1: yeah we're, we're human and sexuality is human and to treat it like we do that with so much history where we would just yeah. create this really like pure noble sense of history we romanticize it in such a strange way and it's just not real
0: no it's yeah it's and I feel like it you have to watch like documentaries that yeah. like really go into it to be like, oh, this 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 political thing was about sex. Like, yeah, exactly. we're acting like it's not, but it was. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Um so tell us a little bit about your book, um more in depth. So, obviously, we're talking about this notion of how we learn about sex growing up. I guess what what does that mean to you and how is it manifesting in your, your book as you were writing it?
1: Yeah, I sort of taking from that sort of silly party question of just what was your sex talk like? Yeah. Um, people take that question, they interpret it in so many different ways. So mm-hmm. I really try not to zero in or narrow down anything that folks are telling me. I let them really answer those questions. So the the book itself is a manuscript project that I'm working on right now it's not formally with any publisher at the moment but I will be start I'll start doing inquiry and things like that in the next year Um, but it's an anthology of stories that I have transcribed from interviews with folks so Hmm. the idea is that I ask really sparse questions I say things like what are some emotions you remember as a kid when you were learning about sex for the first time? Hmm. And then folks share some emotions with me. And I'm like, could you tell me about a time you felt shame, humor, discomfort, trauma, yeah. joy, the, for the first time when you were having those experiences. So sometimes people talk about school. Sometimes people talk about being really little and hearing certain things from their parents. Sometimes yeah. they talk about Just shame because they heard nothing ever. Yeah. Um, And they had to Google things. Or so I really let each individual person define what it means for them because I don't think there is one answer to what does learning about sex mean to you. Totally. Yeah. Um, The structure of the book in general, I have themes broken down so folks' stories will sort of go in different spaces, but it's really meant to be more organic. It's supposed to feel like. sitting in a room across a coffee shop or something with Mm -hmm. somebody or across a coffee table with someone they're just sort of telling you their story is what I want it to feel like
0: yeah I love that um I think the idea is really interesting and I think the the open-ended questions right because you don't um you don't want someone to feel pigeonholed into telling one narrative or the other because like you said it everyone has sex ed stories and they all take such different forms and I I I don't know. I I mean, I'm interested in this idea of how, um, identity comes to play in all of that and, um, culture, um, socioeconomic class. There's so many factors that you must Mm -hmm. encounter in those stories that can come into play, um, that are, that are really interesting. Um, are there any themes that you've found to be consistent, um, across several? (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there are a lot of overlaps and a lot of things that people share, but I think the the strongest theme that exists throughout every single story, and right now I have somewhere in the 30s and I'm hoping to get around 50 before I sort of start formally putting it together, yeah. but across 30 individual stories and then also including all of the random times that I've asked people this question of what was your sex talk like, um, yeah. no one has wanted less information. Mm. No one has said, like, you know what, I just feel like I got too much context. I got too much information about my body and how it works. Um, Even people, because I've interviewed folks who aren't necessarily like the most sexually progressive folks in the world, they... Mm they still have been like, I wish that I had more facts and context for things that I could learn more when I had like values conversations with my parents, or I wish I had more context that I knew what kinds of questions to ask. Um, Mm. So I haven't interviewed a single person who wanted less information. And I think that that's really telling to the way that we present sexuality in our current culture, but the ways that we talk about it is so sparse.
0: Yeah, that's really powerful, because I think Again, we've talked about this already, but people often act like more information is sort of like the the evil in all of this. And in fact, it's really the opposite, right? I mean, we, we have statistics that show that, you know, more education, more information leads to informed, safe decisions, right? And um, I think there are so many situations that can be prevented, you know, on, on any end of the spectrum, right, whether it just be embarrassing or be traumatic right lowercase t or capital t right Mm -hmm. that that had someone involved just been a little bit more informed Mm -hmm. um everyone would have been a little bit better off at the very least
1: i think another theme that is really present is even when parents do a great job there are always things that you're gonna miss right like Mm. Um, that's not to say that don't try, but parents are not nuanced, complicated people too. And a lot of the people that I interview are parents now. And the way that they talk about it is so interesting and refreshing. Of, I really think of them as cycle breakers of like, I'm trying to have these conversations and I'm trying to do this stuff. Yeah. I know I'll mess up and that it's just okay to mess up. Yeah. like it's okay to just do your best and try and give more information than you received and thinking of it more as a relay race of like I'll mm. get this this much further and then they can take it this much further as opposed to just I need to give the sex talk perfectly because mm. then it terrifies parents as opposed to just doing it I think the tip is something along the lines of like consistent um like shame free casual yeah. talking about sex just not in a way that's this is our time. Like this is the talk. Just avoiding yeah. that energy, but it's okay to mess up. But it's just not okay to freeze up and not say anything
0: because you're too nervous. Yeah, totally. No, I I love that idea as well. And I think too, like, um, one thing that I I I guess that I think of when when you describe that is this idea that it's okay to turn to resources or like mm-hmm. other sources. I like, to your point, I can imagine, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine situations where a parent, the parents I work with even are like, I wanted to have the perfect sex talk. I couldn't do it. I need to go elsewhere. I don't know where to go. And, and um, I think even just be, being open to resources, um, whether that's like a, you know, an, a sex ed program, obviously I work with a nonprofit that teaches sex ed outside of schools or just like knowing like that you can do some googling as an adult and there's nothing embarrassing about needing to google stuff about sex ed because like you said we're all consistently in, in need of learning continual learning on this mm-hmm. absolutely yeah um in your i mean work research but in kind of your your book research um what are some uh key factors and sources if different than just sort of a parent or caregiver that influence the way that young people kind of learn about sex outside of formal education
1: yeah that's a that's a really great question because a lot of these stories will overlap they'll say here's mm. what I learned from my mom and then I learned this other thing in like sex ed class and things yeah like that. but the themes are really broken down I have um friends as a really, really prominent source of information. Yeah. Um, I recently interviewed a woman who she, she's so lovely and she grew up in a house where her mom didn't talk about sex at all. And then her mm. dad, um, they had divorced when she was young, and her dad um was was queer and he was with a man. So she had these two dads who were like very open, honest and empowering and were like, you can yeah. go to Planned Parenthood if you want, hear all the resources, hear all the things. Um But she still had to rely on her friends a ton because Mm. the space that was really open and honest about sex didn't have a lot of context for female anatomy and didn't have a lot of support for her own experience and things. So she was telling me about how um, she didn't know you had to take the applicator out of the tampon when you used it. So she goes, this is super uncomfortable.
0: Oh, damn. Uh, Yeah.
1: Or these moments of going to her friends and saying, like, I figured out a new orgasm, you guys. And they were just like, what are you talking about? And she's like, I thought like, I figured out this orgasm, and it, like, it yeah, feels yeah. so good, and they're just, like, what did you think orgasms were before, and she goes, oh, just, like, when you were having sex, and it felt kind of good, She's sort of thought that that wasn't, an- so,
0: I feel like the- that's so common, honestly, that one in particular, I,
1: I think so, too, especially yeah. for women, um, or girls, or female-bodied folks, or whatever, yeah, um, not whatever, in, like, a dismissive way, but whatever, no, in like, yeah, a gender-expansive yeah. way, yeah. um, but we, we have these moments where we're going to our friends and we're not even realizing that they're giving us education and we're relying on our peers who are yeah. sometimes relying on porn. And sometimes you have a friend who has a really great parent who is giving all of this context and then they become your teacher. Um, yeah. But the Internet is huge. Yeah. Like we We get so much information and content and education from the Internet, whether we intend to or not. I think yeah. the average age someone sees porn for the first time in the U.S. right now is 11, and it's oh not intentional God. most of the so time. Totally not.
0: Yeah, of course. So, well, not of course. I guess it could be.
1: <laughs> yeah. But like a lot of times it's someone that shows them to shows it to them, or it's something that comes up in their their feeds or whatever the context yeah. is. Um, but then if you don't have the language, you have no context for what you're seeing, and it's stressful, totally. and it's scary, and it's upsetting, and all of this stuff, and it just doesn't need to be. Um Yeah. Silence is a big part. It's really interesting. There are Mm. some themes around, we assume we have like this gender divide of whose job it is to teach which gendered kids about sex. Yeah. Um, And a lot of times dads just aren't a part of those conversations, but when they are, it's really striking. So I have a chapter on Mm. fathers and those conversations. One of the folks I interviewed talked about how she thinks her dad would have given a much more comfortable and easygoing sex talk and would have been potentially just much better equipped for it based on his personality, but these gendered ideas of whose job it was to do that left her with her mom, who was really deeply uncomfortable and filled with shame about this thing, so she had
0: some introspection around that. Um, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. so many different ways. That's so interesting. I think um, uh, not at all that this is about me, but when I think about my own parents gender divide really my my mom is very much like the cool mom um and and my parents split up when I was super super young um and then my dad passed away when I was a kid as well so he wasn't in my life for very long during adolescence but during the time that he was um he was like and my parents were divorced and so he wasn't sure what I was getting from my mom she wasn't sure what I was getting from him they didn't really speak yeah. to each other so he he got me books right and he very early on was like this is for you to read but this is normal, and you should know your body. and that I'll leave it at that. And he was like a very nerdy bookish guy, so it all made sense. And then my mom is, like I said, the cool mom. And on the other hand, my mom spoke almost solely from personal experience and and my and I've talked about this in the show, my mom was a swinger for a number of years. And so like for her, she, I mean, a lot of what her standpoint on it was kind of like in hindsight blowing off what I think to me at that age would have been like monumental sexual experiences had they been something I'd encountered right where she was like yes it's normal like people do this and yeah I mean like that was helpful but it was also sort of like I'm getting education over here and then like just anecdotes over here and I don't know how to marry the two right and it was so it was I mean I think very gendered in a way that because um you know i think my mom was playing a very stereotypical uh like submissive woman role in some of these kind of kinky sex encounters and my dad was like we're not going to talk about it but here you should read these books and like there's pros and cons to both of those methods but it's just really interesting to think about where folks go and you mentioned friends i think everyone ends up um learning from their friends i mean pfft, i feel like before we had Like, really, the internet. Like, I mean, I guess I started, I started like playing like The Sims with friends, like The Sims 1 when I was like 12 or 13. Woohooing, mind blowing to me. What is going on in that sheet? I gotta know.
1: Yes. I, the number of times that sims comes up in- and <laughs> it's it's one of my favorite weird little fun facts and it so disproportionately comes up with queer folks so i'll be like sitting here you see it right <laughs> okay, so i'm yeah. like i'm like i'm a bisexual woman yeah i'm like i remember playing sims 2 and i remember um having all of these like <laughs> these queer couples in these this town that i would build and i would have these people um as a kid which is just like sims fosters like the weirdest little storylines and personalities (laughs) but i would just be like have the wives that i would make leave their husbands with all of their money (laughs) for the maid and i'm like how did it take me so long to come out this is the silliest thing um but the number of times that Sims comes up is way too funny, um, but you made a really great point about books too because mm-hmm. books and movies and TV shows and resources like we outsource sex education so often. Yeah, um, and there's actually a whole documentary. It's called Sex Ed the movie, mm-hmm. um, or Sex Ed the documentary. I'm not sure if you've heard of it or seen it. I've heard of it. I don't think I've seen it though. I should watch it. Yeah, it's a film history. So it they follow and find all of these like clips and these educational films that we've used over the years in the U S specifically mm. on sex ed and how we, we have this, such this deep discomfort talking about it that we need to just like turn the lights off and post play on a movie. <laughs> um, and we kind of do that in class too, or we kind of do that at home too, where it's, here's this book. Um, and yeah. the care and keeping of you, the American girl doll care yeah. and keeping of you that one's, it's iconic because so many little girls got this book, or like young yes. um, female presenting kids got this book. And there's something kind of magical about it in that it situates putting a tampon in right next to brushing your teeth and using deodorant, mm. where it's just yeah. this is your body. And it's not about sex, right? It's a very like puberty focused hygiene, like, yeah, hygiene sure. thing. Um, but there's something really cool about how so many women have this memory of learning how to put a tampon in through this, this bizarre little book that American girl doll company made. Um, which is yeah. really
0: progressive for their brand. So I definitely. totally
1: agree. <laughs> um, but yeah, we outsource sex ed.
0: Yeah. The media. Yeah. So how, um, how have you found in these conversations that like media representations um of sex itself contribute to the way that people form I mean their opinions about sex the way that they start at an early age to think through what it is that they like and don't like the way that they see their role in sex um and like any challenges or misconceptions that people talk about kind of after the fact
1: yeah I think a lot of times I hear things about Well, I just didn't think I was the kind of person who would date or Mm. I just didn't know anything like what that sex was supposed to necessarily feel good. Or I didn't know I didn't see people like me in TV or movies. So there are like lots of little moments, but I think how abstract a lot of sex scenes are in movies have just, yeah, it creates a lot of, which I'm not saying all movies should be like full sex education like here is exactly how intercourse yeah. like <laughs> yeah. uh I'm not suggesting that but I think the hypersexualization the way that we situate things in movies and TV shows without any real knowledge or context of the thing creates yeah. this we think we know a lot when we don't mm. um or we think that we're really confident and comfortable and understand a lot of things and then we're still needing to learn all of that stuff ourselves and with our own bodies or we're needing to learn it in some other capacity so I think media is more of a contextual framework for a thing as opposed to a real way that we learn and get that mm. I mean I think it is a real way that we learn but it's not yeah. the way we learn the anatomy and the respect and the facts that we need to know in order to navigate the world in our own bodies so yeah, it- it more confuses or situates things in ways that without context are hard to understand.
0: Yeah, and it's difficult I think to explain to a child, I mean of whatever age like that yes, media is a reflection of life, but it is an abstraction of life. Mm-hmm. It's a fantasy of life. It's, you know, in the context of porn, crafted to be a stimulant. It's representative right. representative of I mean, you know what movies are a stimulant right as well. Yes. It's it's escapism and and it's not um you know, it's not it's not the stuff of real life. I think it's rare um you know, I was thinking through this a couple of years ago about like media representations of um the reaction to sexual assault and like what media representations I could find of like people in the wake of, of sexual assault, like, you know, what visible symptoms a character have that, that are consistent with, with, you know, studied reactions, whether it's, you know, on the more, you know, I don't want to say extreme end, but on the more diagnosed end of like a a post traumatic stress disorder response versus just, um, you know, having an inability to the intimate, whatever that looks like for you. I mean, there, there's so many different ways that people respond to trauma, and no one, no one knows how they're supposed to respond because media is not representing it at all. And what it is representing is is a fantasy, right? It's escapism. But how do you teach a child about escapism if they're not sure that Edward Cullen isn't real, right? You know what
1: right. I mean? Like, which media literacy, right? I mean, totally. We yeah, we have conversations of why do you think Bella's so attracted to Edward? What are the pieces in this that you feel like look healthy? What pieces don't look healthy? We, um, I recently did a rewatch of the Twilight series and the number of times. Okay, love it. Um, But the number of times that there's these conversations around purity and needing to wait certain times to have sex, but this like devotion, like all of these conversations are just fodder for like Mm -hmm. deep conversations about sex and relationships in my mind where I'm like, let's get into it. And my friends are all like, we're three glasses of wine deep trying to watch New Moon (laughs) for some reason. This is not the time.
0: Um, I love it. Yeah i i did honestly it was in july i had sort of a um i'm i'm healthy and well don't worry but you know you sort of sort of slip into a depressive episode and you're like what do i watch i was like i need something that's not a comedy because i don't have the physical energy to laugh Mm -hmm. but i need something that makes me laugh that i think is funny but is also a romance and truthfully i cannot watch the 2005 pride and prejudice anymore because i've seen it thousands of times because it's my go-to yeah it's an incredible go-to it's thank you so much it's a fantastic film but i was like twilight it is and i had the same thing and at one point someone came over to my apartment or my partner walked in and i was in the middle of new moon and i was like let's get into this because what (laughs) is going on here um and like it is totally like when I, I read the Twilight book series when they first came out and I read the whole series in its entirety five times and I'm sure there are people who read it more but at that age and with a natural inclination towards a fascination of sex and just assuming at the time that that meant that I had to fall in love with someone who had a penis and mm-hmm. um, I mean I I – am married to someone with a penis for the record but um but like yeah but like you know not not having the opportunity at the time mentally to explore my own queerness but um it was like the most glorious picture in the world to think about edward cullen in a golden bed he bought just for bella to sleep in and not have sex in okay and to him to say that he he needed to be married first because he loved her that much i mean it's, it's, it's a lot for it's a lot for a 12 year old to process without any context um sorry to listeners who hate twilight <laughs> that we're getting into this but it's it is it's one yeah. of the momentous media examples of this for our generation right
1: well and i think we have i mean that's a thing Still, I mean, Twilight, to a certain extent, but yeah. fantasy romances, are yeah. they're they are having a moment right now, which I think is so For great sure. and fun. It's um, yeah, up, up my alley, 100%. But, but I think it speaks to the idea that folks who are very against full-on sex ed conversations or sex talk conversations ongoing at home or sex ed in schools, they're living in this delusional reality where people don't get messages about sex unless totally. it's at their pre-approved location right Mm. um wherever that may be for the people who um believe that it's improper to talk about anything other than abstinence or that there are like specific times and moments in your life that you're supposed to learn about it yeah we don't live in a world where that's real um people will read twilight and they will think that the obsession and the stalking and all these other things are romantic and incredible yeah um or the trope of thousands of year old immortal man falls in love with 13 or like 15 year old teenage girl like we Mm. don't we don't question those really yeah if we don't have the context for Mm. all of those things with actual anatomy actual conversations of body parts actual conversations of like respect and consent and healthy relationships look like yeah um and Twilight's such a per- such a funny example, and I'm again I apologize to your listeners as well for continuing <laughs> on this train. Um, I love it. But I remember when it came out, and people are like, "So he doesn't have blood, but he's supposedly able to get an erection." And I'm like, "You're asking the right questions." <laughs>
0: like- I I remember so vehemently saying because I remember my mom kind of being like, "I think people are like, actually maybe she didn't even ask. I feel like my mom probably didn't know." But I was like, "Mom, people are so mad about Twilight." And this is when I was obviously 12 or 13. I was like, people are so mad about Twilight, but like Bella's doing this because she wants to. Like, I was like, she has agency. Not that I was using that word, but I fully believe that she did. And, you know, fine. I mean, good for me, I guess, for trying to find some empowerment and all of that, (laughs) I guess. Um, But like, but yeah, I I was like, you know what? Like, the lore makes sense. I was like, yeah, he can get her pregnant because his vampire venom can also create sperm. (laughs) his sperm is immortal his immortal sperm what are we to do his, i can't can create a half immortal baby i mean i yeah. was like i was sold i was like you know what stephanie meyer she gets it <laughs> which like i don't want to i mean I, you know i won't get into stephanie meyer's background but i think yes she herself yes. did not have comprehensive sex education so that's a whole other thing um yeah. Anyway, feels like we should have
1: this on Twilight. Yeah. <laughs> Media. Um,
0: yeah.
1: Yes. I mean, our context for things, um, Twilight or otherwise, we <laughs> we don't know how to situate things when we're eleven, yeah. when we're totally. twelve, when we're reading these like young adult fantasy romances, in a way that's entirely beneficial or helpful, unless yeah. unless we have that context elsewhere, other places. I mean,
0: um, yeah. Yeah. Do you do you find an in? Um, your work and your in your research that the sort of exposure to some of this um, more not not comprehensive not comprehensive age appropriate sex ed like in my mind you talk about consent in non sexual ways of course like kind of as soon as possible mm-hmm. you talk about anatomy and puberty at the appropriate ages and you sort of kind of pun intended edge into um, some of the more <laughs> adult themes when when the time is right right but um, are there any relationships between or correlations between when people first start learning about sex um and like their the impact it has on their overall understanding of it or do you find that just age is less of a factor than um some of the other variables
1: I I think to a certain extent, it's different for everybody, right? Because you're going to have some kids that are really precocious and are really interested in it and want to know more information. You have some kids that are just like not interested, not ready, not open to it for a variety of different reasons. Um, Yeah. In general, with sex education research, folks have found that more sex education, more comprehensive sex education that includes different methods of birth control and healthy relationships and all these other things result in a later sexual debut. So folks tend to have sex for the first time later or like what they mm. define as sex for the first time later in their lives than folks who receive less sex education, which yeah, I think really puts a nail in the coffin for a lot of those conversations from the folks yeah. trying to stoke that controversy of if that's really your goal, like we know how to do it and it's not what you're suggesting. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I really think kids ask the, if kids are... In a situation, in a context with adults that they can trust that answer their questions, kids will ask the questions that they want to know. Like, I remember when I was in, like, fifth grade, my mom sat me down. She goes, you're going to get the puberty talk. You're going to have this. This is going to happen in school, so I want you to just be ready. So she gave me the sex talk, like, the first of very, very, very many in my life. Um, She gave me a sex talk, and I remember I was, like, in fifth grade. I'm like, why would anyone want to do that? And she goes, well, it feels good. And I was like, cool. And that was all I needed. Yeah. We <laughs> yeah. we overthink stuff. Um, kids ask the questions that they want answers to. So if someone, mm. if a little kid is, how are babies made? Yeah. Parents are, oh my God, I have to have this talk. I have to start this whole conversation. I have to be ready. I have to talk about the biology. I have to talk about this, 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 and this. And depending on your kid and their age, they usually just want a really simple answer to the thing. Mm. They usually are just... They ask how babies are made. Well, there's this thing called sex and adults can do it and sometimes babies come from it and sometimes they don't. Um you don't have to like go into how a penis is inserted into a vagina or you don't have to go into yeah. the science of IVF or like any of these other like they're not they don't care about that. They yeah. they want the question that they had to answer or the answer they asked the question to. And I think given a situation like I said where kids are feel open and safe to ask whatever questions it is that they have. They're going to ask you the ones they want to know the answer to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no it's it's true. I mean, I my favorite part about teaching middle school and high school is that we have an and a lot of sex educators do this, but like we have an anonymous question box, obviously. Mhm. And um you know we take them we leave come back with a well researched answer cuz sometimes they're asking like what does blank mean and it's a word from deep in the internet that they're encountering now and i'm like i you know i thought i i thought i knew my shit right and i i tend to in in talking to adults about sex i i do a lot of kink normalization and like um so i i've i've been in some dark holes of in the internet right but um sometimes they just hear things that i just have i mean no context for and and right they just want a definition right it's not it doesn't have to open a can of worms of like you know but if you're gonna do this x y and z sometimes they just want a definition and and you can say and you know by the way in any situation like consent is the most important thing and wholehearted enthusiastic verbal consent from everyone involved and like if that opens up another question great if it doesn't perfect you've given them everything that they needed in that moment and obviously i'm thinking more about folks are a little bit older than you know your your you know, single digit ages, but, but all the same, right. Sometimes simple is, is perfect.
1: <laughs> I totally. Agree. And sometimes the questions they ask are so context specific, right. Yes. I was teaching in front, like in front of a group of, they were freshmen or sophomores. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, they were like young teenagers. Right. And at one point the anonymous question is like, is it true that anal sex makes your butt bigger? <laughs> And I was like, it's a fair question honestly like, I've never heard that one before yeah. and I don't even know if I googled that I would get like a concrete like I know that it doesn't yeah. signed, like personally yeah. and as an educator I know that it doesn't but I'm I was like if I googled this I don't even know if I would be able to figure out where this rumor came from um, and it turned yeah. out it was a rumor that was really isolated to this specific school and it was started by a bunch of boys which you can imagine the implications of that of people with girls with naturally large large butts were getting slut shamed and girls that had tiny butts were thinking that this is a way to fix it like it was so problematic and there were so many layers going on um but sometimes you can't google the answers right sometimes you can't figure out where a thing came from um you just have to do your best and be really honest and upfront with them and be like i've never heard that before i that is not a thing that scientifically can happen but yeah i get the concern and that does seem really stressful to have that question so like i'm glad you asked it so it's
0: yeah it's i mean wild that's yeah the, one of the beauties and detriments of having the imagination of a teenager is you <laughs> end up in <laughs> some weird shit yeah and that, yeah well hopefully you cleared that up so people stop getting bullied for sure did different body body shapes and sizes sure did yeah (laughs) um so i guess what in your mind is sort of the um the long-term maybe optimistic trajectory of of some of the work that you're doing and work that other sex educators and um and you know sex um therapists and coaches are doing in the space of, of like normalizing different experiences like is there hope for policy change in the u.s to improve over time i think
1: there's so much hope and i'm really i'm not trying to be inauthentically optimistic about it but i really (laughs) i really do believe that we have a lot of hope in in the way that we navigate policies and the way that we push forward policies i think that there's a lot of fear and trepidation around pushing forward comprehensive sex ed bills at the state level and at things like that yeah we have a group of students and a group of young people who have more access to information and knowledge than they ever have before. They know language for how to identify themselves. They're thinking yeah. of themselves more critically because they have these tools and these educators online and people making podcasts and TikToks and all these things that they yeah. can access. Um, and they're going to keep pushing for it. And as we grow older and the generations shift and all of these different things change, I, I don't think there's a lot of space to continue to lie and withhold information from kids about their bodies and about sexuality Mm -hmm. anymore. Um, With my dissertation, I really am proud that I ended on a really hopeful note with that as well. I interviewed some teachers. I asked them about what it's like to teach comprehensive sex education in conservative areas. And they were in Washington where comprehensive sex ed passed by a public vote. So it is Mm -hmm. required in all schools. And they said Like within a few weeks after the vote passed and they were teaching it, parents weren't coming to curriculum nights. And if they were, it was like a couple sentences of, hey, I'm actually not teaching a kid how to have sex. I'm making sure that they're safe and that they know what their bodies and they didn't have questions anymore because controversy is sparked by a small, loud few. It is not from the many and not everyone is going to pick up that torch and continue fighting it, especially when they realize the benefits of their own children having access to information. So I'm really optimistic. And I think even just the nature of people being more open to talk to each other about things pushes us to learn more. I think we're on the cusp of some really, really exciting times policy-wise. Hopefully in Minnesota, we're able to push that forward. But in a lot of other states, too, I know it seems really scary right now with a lot of anti-LGBTQ plus bills and a lot of Anti-reproductive rights and things like that, but I have a lot of hope for our young people.
0: Awesome, oh, we needed that. We needed some optimism <laughs> there. Um, so, of course, you're you're in interviews now um, for for your book. How um, one are you still open to interviews? And if so, kind of what are you looking for? And if people wanted to reach out to you, um, what would that look like? Yeah,
1: I'm looking for. Truly any story that you have. I think sometimes people think they don't have one, but they do. Mm -hmm. So anyone who is just interested in sharing their own experience of how they learned about sex growing up, um, I really want the book to feel like it's reflective of people of all gender and sexual identities, different age groups, different ethnic and religious backgrounds, lots of different, lots of different voices. That all end up, again, saying a very similar thing if we wish we had more. Yeah. <laughs> we wish we had more information. So if anybody is interested in being interviewed for my book and being included in it, um,
0: emailing me is probably the best route. Emails in the show notes. Um, and do you want them to include any specific information or just say, hey, I'm down? yeah
1: i mean i think saying just sort of your name age any information that you think is important that i might want to know but also that's totally up to you reaching out letting me know you're interested we'll set up a time to do a little zoom hangout interview they're usually 15 to 30 minutes so this is really low stakes i transcribe it all make it into a little story and then folks make any changes they want to make it feel like the most authentic version of their story
0: awesome i love that process um Meg, thank you so much for your time today. Um this is really interesting I think for myself, but of course also for the listeners and um I'm excited to hear if people reach out to you. I'm sure they will. Everyone's got a story like you said and um we'll be we'll be keen to kind of spread the word and um we'll be on the lookout for your book one day as well. But thank you so much. Thank you. This was so much fun. I love it. And sorry again about the Twilight, but also I'm not that sorry. (laughs) I'm not that sorry either.